0: This morning we're going to be in Psalm 11. Psalm 11. Last week we had our praise service. We were praising the Lord for His goodness, for all of the blessings that He's given to us in our lives. We shared some testimonies in that regard. And this morning, I mean, I think it's appropriate always to be thankful to the Lord and to praise Him. But this morning we're going to be looking at a Psalm Uh, In one way, it's a praise psalm of David because he puts his trust in the Lord. In another way, this is also known as an imprecatory psalm because he's praying for judgment upon his enemies. But we're going to look at the whole thing in light of how it's applicable to us and how David approaches this situation. Now, before we read, I want to give you just a little bit of background so you understand what we're reading here. This is written by King David of Israel. It's a psalm of David. And the context is a time in David's life when he is facing great danger. We don't know specifically if it's when he's running from Saul for his life and hiding in the mountains, or whether he's trying to, uh, or afterwards, after he's been crowned king and he's facing a, a severe, very strong enemy. We don't know. Okay? Some commentators assume this is before he takes the throne and Saul is chasing him. Um, but here what we read is David's response to counselors that are giving him advice. That's the first three verses. And so he's responding to them. And then in the last couple of verses of this psalm, he explains his response there because of what he knows about God. So verses 1 through 3 are the challenges put forth by well-meaning counselors. These are not false teachers necessarily. They're just trying to help him. And they're trying to convince David to run because of the danger that he faces. 4 through 7, then, is his response, which basically sums up his answer to them. Okay, so the underlying message here is encouragement for God's people to stand and trust the Lord in the face of danger. It's not always the right answer to run. And that's what David gives us here in Psalm 11. So let's follow along as I read Psalm 11. And uh, we'll see what God has for us here this morning. So starting in verse 1 in Psalm 11, David says, In the Lord put I my trust. How say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For lo, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string, that they may privately shoot at the upright in heart. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone and a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness, his countenance doth behold the upright." We'll take a minute to pray, and then we'll look at our message this morning. Father, as we come before your word and submit ourselves to the things you have to teach us today, I pray that you would open our hearts now. I pray that you would remove the distractions, help us to focus on the encouragement and the challenge that you give us through your truth. and May your spirit guide us to understand. We've already sung, guide me, O thou great Jehovah. So teach us now during this time by your spirit. And Father, I pray that you would just strengthen me as well as I speak. Give me your words. Give me the wisdom that comes only from you. Give me your spirit and fill me with your spirit so that I might be able to teach and preach in boldness and in power because of your truth. And may we go from this place challenged by you to live in a renewed faith and trust because you are our God. So we thank you for this time and may you receive the praise and glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we read this psalm, we see David facing this challenge, and and as I mentioned, the first couple of verses here are his advisor's response to the danger that he faces. This is not an imagined danger, it's real danger, and it's relevant to us today because all of us face dangers in our lives or troubles in our lives of one sort or another. Some are worse than others, but for us they're important, and for God they're important. And so we need to remember that. But to run and hide just because we face danger is not always the answer, and David gives us the reasons for that. The question we have to answer is how are we going to respond then when we we face this kind of situation, when it seems like God has lost control, and the world around us and our lives are just in chaos, and... It could be persecution, it could be trouble from the world, it could be within the church itself, we don't know. Okay, but we all face those kinds of situations. We face illnesses, we face trouble in our own personal lives. So we all have these troubles that we face, and the question is, how will we respond? And that's the the answer is right here, David gives us the answer in Psalm 11. Now, before I get into this psalm in detail, I want to remind you of some words that were written in our country by one of the founding fathers back in 1776. Thomas Paine wrote these words, These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier, the sunshine patriot, will in this crisis shrink from the service of their country, but he that stands by it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Now, these words were written by Thomas Paine in a pamphlet called The American Crisis during the Revolutionary War, and America was truly in a crisis. Our country was at a turning point at that point, point. and these are the words that he used to encourage people to stand up for what was right. And I believe those words that he wrote, these are the times that try men's souls could be applied not only to our country today, but to our lives today. Because we all face times in our lives that try our souls, that really try our faith. And God has a purpose in that. But if you take a quick look around at the world around us, I mean, we can see chaos. We see anarchy. We see a government that's falling apart and not standing up for right. We see society that's abandoned the truth of God for all practical purposes. But it's not the people It's not the government, it's not society that we are battling. We are reminded by Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, it's a spiritual battle. This is Satan who is attacking us. And he's using all of those avenues to try to undermine our faith and cause us to abandon what God has promised us and run and hide in fear. Now this morning I read to you, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And the psalmist goes on and he says, therefore we will not fear. So the question is, are we going to respond in fear or are we going to respond in faith to these kinds of things as God has promised to be with us? So we understand that these are the times that try our souls. First Peter tells us that Satan lurks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and you may be his next target. In fact, if you're trying to trust the Lord and obey him, you will be his next target. So how will you respond? And I think David gives us in Psalm 11 an answer to that question that we can all rely upon. And so in, in Psalm, 11, David starts and he describes, or it's actually his advisors describe in a sense, these troubles that he faces and they're real dangers. Okay. And their solution to these troubles is that he run and hide. And that's what he says in verse one and two of Psalm 11. He says in the Lord, put I my trust. That's his initial response. The advisors have given him this challenge. You better get out of here, flee for your life, save yourself. And he says, you know what? I'm not going to worry about me. I'm going to trust God. Because that's where my safety and refuge is. And so I trust in the Lord. That's the initial statement that he says. And that should be our initial statement. And when we face troubles, it doesn't matter if it comes from the government, from society, from within the church, in our checkbook, from the bank account, it could be sickness, whatever we try, whatever we are tried with. Our first response should be exactly what David says here. In the Lord will I put my trust. It doesn't matter what we face. God is bigger than any trouble that we can face. And our trust should be in him. And so David starts and he says, In in the Lord I put my trust. And because of that, how come you say to me, Flee as a bird to your mountain. For lo, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string that they may privately shoot at the upright in heart. His counselors are saying, They're going to kill you. They're coming after you. And he says, They're saying to him, Flee, run away. Get out of here. And he's saying, why are you saying that? I have the Lord on my side. I don't need to run. I don't need to hide from these people. They are not bigger than God. And that's what he says in verse 1. Why why do you say this? Considering the fact that my faith is in God. The word privately here in verse 2. It it talks about the kind of threat they basically are describing that his enemies are ready to kill him. And privately means in darkness. Now, it doesn't mean that his enemies have loaded their bows and are just kind of randomly shooting into the dark, hoping to hit him. It means they have planned their attack, like Satan does against us, and they do it in darkness when it can't be uh, seen by the one that they're attacking, and they can't see the arrows coming at them. And so it's, it's kind of a stealth mode thing. And isn't that how Satan attacks us? In stealth mode, when we're not paying attention, when we're at our lowest or our weakest, that's when he attacks. Or when we're at our highest. We just had a great praise and thanksgiving service last week. And I guarantee that many of us went home and immediately the attacks of Satan came to us because he doesn't want us to stay in that attitude of praise and thanksgiving to God, living in joy. He wants to distract us from that and show us all the problems in our life so that we get down and discouraged because then our faith is weak. And so his David's advisors here are saying they're ready to kill you. They're ready to attack you. And their target, if you look at the target here in verse 2, he says, they, they make ready their arrow upon the string that they may privately shoot at the upright in heart. Now, doesn't that feel like our culture today? It's those people who want to follow the Lord, who are trying to obey his word, who are trying to do the right thing, trying to trust in God. Those are the ones that are attacked the most. And maybe that's how you feel. You know, maybe, as we look at our lives, if we haven't had any persecution and nobody really hates us and we don't have any troubles, we should reevaluate, are we truly trusting God? are we truly living for God in this culture? because Jesus said in John fifteen verses eighteen and nineteen, if the world hate you, the world if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, that because you're not of the world. But I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So the world will hate people who are different. And I don't mean just different in the sense that they're a little different. I mean their whole philosophy of life, everything they live for and by, is different from what the world lives in. And that's the way we should be as Christians. You know, Jesus tells us that we are to come out from among them. Paul said that in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Come out from among them and be separate. We are to be different in our lifestyles and why we live and how we live as believers. And because we do that, the world will hate us. Now, many of you know that um, Christians, what they call extreme right-wing fanatics, because we're Christians and we hold on to our Bibles, right? We are on the most wanted list. We are the most dangerous people in the country. That's how we've been labeled. That's how they labeled Jesus. So it's not surprise. But we don't need to fear that. We don't need to fear corrupt government. We don't need to fear corrupt society or culture that's coming after us. Because our strength, our faith is in God. That's what David says right at the beginning. I'm going to trust in God. So the wicked world will always hate those who live in truth because we live in truth. They don't want the truth. And as we live in truth, we make it very apparent their rebellion against God. If everybody was just living like the world, then everybody would be the same. There would be no difference. Nothing would be highlighted as out of the ordinary. But when God's people live the way God wants us to, to live, according to his truth, then that makes a specific and very extravagant difference between what we look like in our lifestyle and what they look like. And it highlights the sin that characterizes the life of the world. People don't like that. Have you ever had somebody attack you because you did a certain thing and all you were doing was trying to obey and do what was right? You know, I just this week, I was driving through Beaver. The light turned yellow and I slowed down and stopped. The guy behind me slammed his brakes on and honked the horn. Like I was supposed to go through the red light because he needed to get there. Okay? They hate us if we do right. And that's a simple analogy, but you get the idea. Okay? So David faces dangers here, and we face dangers in our lives. And the world will hate us based on our response to those dangers and based on our lifestyle. David says, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm not going to let those threats worry me. I'm not going to let them chase me away. I'm not going to let them change the way I live and serve the Lord. I'm going to trust in God. Verse 3 tells us what else their target is. It's not just the uprightness in heart, or the upright in heart. But these, these advisors say, what if the foundations be destroyed? What if they destroy the foundations of everything that we know is right? What are the righteous going to do? Now, the commentators will give several suggestions what they're talking about when they talk about foundations here. It could be the foundations of government. If this is a time in which Saul is chasing David, Saul is the anointed king of Israel. He is the one who is the supreme ruler over Israel. I mean, apart from God himself. But he is the one who is supposed to uphold the laws that God gave to Israel to follow. And now he's abandoned that. He's seeking only for his own preservation and to hold on to the kingdom in uh, contrast to what God has already said was going to happen. He's abandoned God's law in trying to kill David. David. Chasing him, abandoning every other responsibility that he has so that he can get vengeance on this enemy that he sees as an enemy. And so the whole foundation of government is collapsed. David has nowhere to turn. He can't go to the courts because Saul's in charge of that. He can't go anywhere in the government of Israel to try to find justice. It's all collapsed under this wicked king. And so some people think that this is what... This foundations have collapsed or the foundations have been removed. And it sounds very similar to what we're facing in our country today. With the corruption in government, the the things that are going on that are just absolutely wrong and apart from God's truth, in direct rebellion against God's truth, and as believers, then as we even as we look at our government, we understand a little bit of what David is facing. The courts are not going to support us as a general rule. The, ports are not going to, the courts are not going to uphold right. We've seen so many examples of that in the last decade or so. So we understand the foundations of justice, the foundations of government are being eroded away. In fact, in some cases, they've been removed completely. So that's one option. The second option, it could be the foundations of society. Now, along with the government not supporting David in any way, think about all the people that were loyal to King Saul. They were so glad when King Saul was anointed. Remember, he was head and shoulders. He looked good. He was like the warrior king. This is what we need. And so there's lots of people that are loyal to Saul. And I am sure that the propaganda that came out of the royal palace painted David not in a good light. And so even in society, there are a lot of people who are against David. It's not just Saul. It's the whole society. There were a few that banded together with him. They were a bunch of misfits that were already kicked out of society anyway. But the society was being destroyed around David. And our society, foundations of our society are being destroyed as well. No one stands up for right in our society anymore. There's no sense or standard of morality in our country as there once was years ago. And you just look at examples of the immorality. There's more babies that are born to unwed mothers than to brides every year in our country. There are more children brought up and broken in one-parent homes than ever before. The family has been destroyed. And now corrupt politicians want to redefine what the family and marriage should be. Our culture is pushing for us to accept homosexuality and all that's related to it as normal when God calls it an abomination. I mean, and, and thanks largely in part to the Internet and even our school systems, children at a very young age are being exposed to pornography and other things that, that should never be a part of their lives anyway. And yet that's in our society. And so the foundations of our society are being systematically done away with by the very people who should be building it up. We should trust the, the educators in our schools. We should trust the leaders of our country. And we can't. And so like Lot in Sodom, the souls of righteous people are being vexed by the rampant unrighteousness, the rampant sin that exists in our culture. And we have to stay here and live in it. And I think that's the reason why more and more Christians are praying, Lord, come quickly. But that's not for an escape. It's to receive the final glory and reward that God has for us. But until that time when Paul talks about the return of of Christ, when he comes to take his church, he says, but remain steadfast, unmoving, always abounding in the work of the Lord until that day comes. So we're not to run and hide in the face of all this. We're going to continue to trust God, to remain steadfast, just like David was here. The third foundation that could be being done away with, the foundation of truth. If you think about David's situation here, he's, his life is in danger at the hands of the very one he should be able to trust. This is God's anointed king, remember? Saul, It was well, the people chose the king. God anointed him because that's what the people wanted, but he's still God's anointed king. And David, on many occasions, had a chance to do away, dispose of Saul when he wasn't looking, and he said, I can't do that because I can't lay my hand on God's anointed. And so David's trying to live by truth, and yet Saul and a lot of people that followed him had abandoned everything that God had told them to do. And so even though God promised to protect David, and God's promise was was to put David on the throne of Israel. It didn't seem like that was going to happen anytime soon. And very easily, David could have lost faith in that promise and in that anointing that he'd already received. In fact, his counselors are telling him, it's not going to happen, David. You might as well just save yourself. And so how many times in our churches do we hear people reinterpreting God's truth to serve their own purposes? Or, how many times do we just forget about God's promises? Because the problem is too much bigger than God's promise. I mean, we hear falsehood in church even today. You know, all you have to do is turn on the TV. And it's things like God helps people who help themselves. That's not what the Bible says. God wants you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. That's not what the Bible says. God doesn't really care about how you live your life. As long as you're trusting him for salvation, that's not what the Bible says either. But that's what's being preached today. And so the foundations of truth are being eroded away by those who we should be looking to lead us spiritually. And yet, they are wolves in sheep's clothing all around In 2 Peter, we're warned that many false teachers would arise from within the church themselves, within the church itself. We don't have to wait for outsiders to come in. We have too many to handle now, false teachers within the church. And when you see them all around us on TV, you can see them in great cathedrals. You can see them dressed as priests, and they're pandering a twisted version of God's truth for a buck. Promising great things, but in reality, the Bible tells us they're nothing more than ravenous wolves. They're trying to fleece the flock in order for self-profit and self-gain. But they'll teach us what we want to hear. So the foundations of truth have been eroded away. And these are real dangers, just like David was facing. We face real dangers today. It's not small things. And so the question that's asked here in verse 3 is, what can we do? How do we respond to this? Every time we stand up for truth, we're struck down. Every time we try to elect leaders who will support morality and true liberty, we are mocked, and those leaders are crucified by the culture. Every time we try to do what we're supposed to do as followers of Christ, it seems we're always on the losing side. And very soon, even within our lifetimes, Maybe the wicked will accrue so much strength and influence that they will initiate widespread public persecution of believers because they are the enemy. I mean, it's very possible the way things are going today that we may face physical persecution in our lifetime because we follow the Lord. So I think that phrase, these are the times that try men's souls, is very appropriate for the times we live in today. And it's not just the politics and the government and society. We have our own troubles in our own life. We face health challenges. We face financial challenges. We face lots of different troubles in our life. And God has a purpose in all of those. But what can we do when it seems like everything is against us? That's the question. And the popular and prevalent message is save yourself, run and hide, do whatever you need to to preserve your life. And there's no way in the world, they say, that the Christianity and the church is ever going to be able to overcome the world. I mean, look how bad it's getting. Things are going to get worse and worse. We know that as we get closer to the return of Christ, and you can't handle this. There's nothing you can do about it. So take the easy way out and preserve yourself. And that's what many Christians have done. But is that the right answer? David says, absolutely not. Here's how he answers those people and those critics or cynics. In verse 4, he says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His life is not guided by the advice of men, but by the promises and the power of God. That's what he relies on. He doesn't even address the dangers and the troubles at all. He goes right to the solution. doesn't matter how big the problems are. He goes right to where his security is found. Look what he says, right? The verse 4, or at the beginning. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. And you say, that's not much of an answer. Yeah, we know God is in heaven. What does that have to do with us? Well, it's what it signifies for us. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. That means God is still sitting on the throne. And it's not just the throne of heaven. It's the throne of all creation. He is in charge. He hasn't lost control of anything. Maybe Saul is about to kill David, but who is Saul in comparison to the lord that sits on the throne this earthly king cannot stand before the king of kings and the world doesn't stand a chance in the face of the great judge the lion of judah because the lord is still on his throne and there's no trouble or trial that can take us out of the hand of the one who holds us tight that's what paul says in romans chapter 8 And in fact, in Romans 8, 37, he says, nay, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors, victorious, not losers. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. So it's not a defeatist attitude or a fatalistic attitude we approach these issues with. It's a victorious attitude because the Lord is still on his throne. And that's really all that matters. So when we find ourselves in times that try our souls, we need to stop looking around at the difficulties around us and the challenges around us and the troubles around us and just look up to see who is still on the throne of heaven. And David says, "Yeah, I get. I get it. It's bad here." So what if the foundations of all of this are being destroyed? God's still on the throne. God's still in control. The Lord is in his holy temple. Things may look bad, but God is still sovereign. Pastor Sean Thomas connects this passage with Isaiah 6.1, and I don't think we get the significance of the connection here. I'm going to explain it. Isaiah 6.1 starts this way. Isaiah saying, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. This is not just a chronological reference, okay? It gives us a time period, obviously, that Isaiah is referring to when King Uzziah died. (coughs) So we know generally (coughs) what year he's referring to, but there's a lot more buried in that statement. Because if you know who King Uzziah was, then you'll understand the significance of what he's saying. King Uzziah was a great king, a very good king and godly king of Israel. He became king when he was 16. He reigned over Judah for 52 years, and he was a very good king in those 52 years. His reign was characterized by prosperity and benevolence, not heavy taxation, not enslavement like the people experienced even under Solomon, but a very benevolent and easy king. And it's described by scholars and historians as one of the most prosperous times in the history of Israel since the time of Solomon. Remember, this is after they've come back. And by now, King Uzziah, who had reigned so prosperously and for so long, was gone. And so the year that King Uzziah died means all that prosperity, all of that blessing that we've been experiencing now at the hand of this good king, it's gone. What's going to happen next? And Isaiah says In that year, when all that went away, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. That great earthly king may be gone, but God is not. We may lose good leaders in this world and in this country, but God does not replace. He's still in charge and he's still on the throne. And so when the foundations of Israel are destroyed, when the foundations of our country are destroyed, when the foundations of our society and our culture, and it seems like even our life seem to be destroyed, what's the solution that David proposes? Look up. God's still on the throne. When all the world around us seems to be in chaos and anarchy, and all the culture seems to be attacking us, look up. Don't look around, look up, and see God on his throne, because God is not dead, God has not given up on us, he's not been overthrown by Satan's armies, and he is going to continue to keep his promises to us, just like he said he would. So what's our problem? We fail to look up. We look around, we look down, but we don't look up. Look at what David says about the Lord in the rest of this psalm. Second part of verse 4 it says, His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked, and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, a horrible tempest. This shall be their portion of their cup. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. Verse 4 says that God tries or tests the children of men. He's testing people to see how they're going to respond. He's testing both the unrighteous and the righteous to help us to realize who we really are and what we really are and where our faith is and why we do things and what we live for. He's testing us not so he can find out, but so that we can see. The question is if God closes his eyes, how would we really live? If God truly were not paying attention, would we be the same people? Another way to look at this is God is using the conditions of the world to test us. I read this statement, I thought it was very appropriate. One commentator said, We have to remember that when the test is being given, the teacher is silent. We've been given the answers. The question is, are we going to remember them when we're in the test? Are we going to count on those answers that the teacher gave us when the test comes? Or are we going to question the validity of what God has taught us? Do we doubt the promises that God's given us when we're in that test? And there will be times when it seems that his eyes are closed There will be times when it seems that he's not looking and it feels like God doesn't care and things are falling apart. And the question is, what do we do in those moments? That's the test. If God really closed his eyes, and he doesn't, because the Bible tells us the Lord does not fall asleep. But if he did, would we do the same thing? What do we do in that moment? The Hebrew word protest here means to try metals by fire. You've probably seen or at least know about how they purge metal of the impurities by melting it down under extreme heat and then they scrape off all of that dross and the impurities and then several times through the fire and scraping out those impurities and what you end up with is a very pure metal, pure gold. Peter reminds us that God tries us as gold in the fire. And we're not to worry and we're not to fret and we're not to kick and scream to God during those times, but we're to trust him because he's purifying us. He's showing us what impurities are still in our lives. And so we need to understand that the way we respond to those trials today is the answer to what we trust in. Do we believe God? The answer is, the Lord is on his throne. God is in his holy temple. And some people will say, well, is that all you got to offer me in a crisis? This is a test. Look up to God. Isn't that enough? What more could we want? That's the answer that David gives here. In this time that tried his soul, he rested in the Lord. He says, here's my answer, the Lord is in his holy temple. And so he looked up to the Lord. When Job went through his trials, and you get to the end of the book of Job, and Job turns to the Lord and he says, Okay, I know you're righteous, but I don't understand all this. Why did you do it? And God gives him four chapters of questions, says, You have no idea what this is all about, and you couldn't understand it even if I explained it to you. And Job says, You're right, I, I submit, I back off in dust and ashes, and I will close my mouth. And Job's answer was, just look up and see who's on the throne. The answer that, give, that Hebrews gives us as we run with endurance the difficult race that is set before us, here's the solution. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. That's it. That's the answer. Look up. And that's the answer that Revelation gives to the suffering saints Jesus tells them, yeah, I know you're in suffering right now. I know you're in difficult straits, but look into heaven because what you'll see in heaven is that the Lamb is seated on the throne and he shall reign forever and ever. That's all the answer we need. God is on his throne and he's in control. We don't need him to explain to us, well, you know, here's the intricacies of this test and here's how I'm going to solve it. It doesn't matter. Because we probably wouldn't wouldn't understand it or maybe even accept it if he tried to explain it to us in the first place. The answer is look up because God's on his throne. And so, in the times that try our souls, we demonstrate where our faith is. In those times, are we trusting in ourselves? Are we trusting in our bank account? Are we trusting in the medical community? Are we trusting in society? Are we trusting in government or are we trusting in God? Verse 6, David's answer says, God's going to judge all those who don't trust in him. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire, brimstone, a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. We don't run and hide. We don't join them because that's the majority. We trust in God because God's going to take care of them. We know judgment's coming. It's not up to, up to us when or how. It's in God's hands. He's got it all under control. We just need to continue to trust God. But verse 7, look at what his, his response to the righteous is. He says, for the, Lord, for the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. Now, that last phrase, His countenance doth behold the upright, in the King James it reads, God basically continues to look at us. But if you look at that in the original manuscripts, it's, it's translated this way in other, other versions. It says, the upright shall behold his face. So it's a two-way thing. We look up, we see God, and he sees us. It's a confirmation that he hasn't lost track of us. It's just a reminder that he hasn't forsaken us or left us alone or lost control. He looks at us. He's still looking at us, but we'll never know that unless we look up. In order to see God's face, we have to look up. And how many times is it true in our lives that we never look up until we hit bottom? Here's the great question of life. Why does God allow so much suffering in the world if he loves us? Why does God allow even Christians to go through so much hardship if he loves us? And the answer, just as always, is this. Because he wants us to look to him and to hold on to him. And many times in our lives, we don't do that until the situation becomes so dire, we realize we can't do it by ourselves anymore. And we have to hit bottom before we look up. These are the times that try men's souls. These are the times that test your faith. How are you going to respond? The context shows David at a time when he's being tempted to turn from the Lord and find a better refuge and stronger foundations to take care of himself and find refuge for himself. And it was fearful counselors who were giving David this advice, people who feared what was around them, because their trust wasn't in God. And so the question is, should we listen to those voices urging us to cut and run, to go hide, to leave our watch, to avoid the conflict? Should we listen to those voices, or should we agree with David and do what David says here? And our response is, no, I'm going to look up because I'm just going to trust in God. He's in control. Because when we do that, with that answer of trusting in the Lord, seeing him on his throne, there is no fear. That's what we read in Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth be removed, though the mountains be removed, the worst could happen. We're not going to fear. Why? Why? Because God's still on his throne. That's all the answer we need. You want to learn to live in faith and be strong in your faith? Look up. Look up more often. Look up continuously. Because as long as you're looking up and seeing that God's on your throne, then you're not looking around to seeing all the stuff that's going on around you. Security is found there, not in anything out here. And so we go through these tests to help us understand that we don't look up enough. We don't see God on his throne. And God wants us to look up to him. So what about you? What troubles are you going through? What are the times that are trying your soul and your faith now? I mean, you may be going through something in your personal life. The answer isn't any different. Look up. God is still on his throne. The Lord is in his holy temple. And like David said in verse 1, in the Lord put I my trust. Is that how you respond in those crises? Here's the test. What's your answer? Let me rephrase as I close that document I read from Thomas Paine, and apply it to us in our lives as Christians. These are the times that try men's faith. The summer Christian, the sunshine churchgoer, will in this crisis shrink from the service of their God. But he that stands by it now in faith will receive that crown of glory in the day of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus has promised us. So are you going to look up? Or are you going to run away? Are you going to listen to the promises of God and hold on to that? Or are you going to listen to the naysayers and the cynics and all the people who are afraid that are giving us all the advice about how we should respond to all the things that are going on around in our world today? Are you the sunshine churchgoer running to hide as soon as oppression appears? Or are you a faithful soldier of the Lord, steadfastly persevering in the battle with nothing to fear because your eyes are fixed on the king on his throne? It's not what we say that is our answer. It's how we respond to those times that try our souls. That's what we really are. Let's look up more and trust in God because he's the only answer we need. Let's pray. Father, again, we just praise you because you are a a confident, consistent, strong, and almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing God. We lose sight of who you are when we look around at uh, the things around us in our world, in our lives. We may think that you've lost control and that things are going haywire because we don't understand, and yet it's just a test. You've told us that over and over, and it's a test for us to realize how little faith we truly have. So teach us to trust you. Teach us to look up always, to see that you haven't changed, that you have not been supplanted on the throne, that you're still in charge of the world and of our lives, so that we can trust in you the way we should, and that we continue to persevere in the battle before us in the life that you've called us to, living in truth, giving a testimony of your goodness and love to those around us so that you can be glorified in our lives. Lord, I pray that you teach us this lesson, help us to grow as we look to you and as you make us more in the image of Jesus Christ. Thank you again for your word and your truth in this challenge today. And May we be more determined, more confident because we know we have a God in heaven who cares. We thank you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen.